hope you all had a very happy Thanksgiving. Good to see many of you back. Uh, we are continuing on in this series on faith, which as uh, we established a few weeks ago is incredibly relevant because while faith is not a special power, faith gives you a special strength because it connects you to the God who is especially strong. And then uh, last week, we kind of talked through how, well, we acknowledged that the world around us sees that people of faith unfortunately, don't really think. We don't like questions. We just rest on tradition. We just believe what we're told. And, and so consequently, in our culture, the misunderstanding is that faith on the one hand and thinking on the other, they don't really have much to do with each other. And we kind of blew that myth apart last week. And if you were not here, you may want to get online and listen to that message as we talked about how understanding is foundationally significant to faith but you don't have to go back just a a week to the message you can go back well 500 years to the birth of the protestant reformation Uh, martin luther who translates the entire bible and studies the whole bible his whole life long basically and who rediscovered for our world certain doctrines of grace and faith he thought, thought a whole lot about faith and he said when it comes to faith it consists of three basic components or aspects There is uh, understanding, and there's conviction, and then there's commitment, but understanding is foundationally significant to faith. You you can't think without faith. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if anybody ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because they have used the whole of their mind. They've thought deeply about things, and so the mind is engaged. But when it comes to faith, it's not only thinking it's not less than thinking but there's more than thinking that's involved there's more than the mind there's also the will and so we're going to see that today thinking about the mind and the will being involved in faith we're going to see that pretty plainly from the text this morning just two verses hebrews chapter 11 verses 6 and 7 let's go ahead and stand out of respect for god who's speaking to us through his word and without faith It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark for his to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, now, like I just said, if you're going to come to faith, you have to use the whole of your brain. In fact, I would have to say something that kind of springboarding off of last week, that probably one of the reasons that seemingly less people are, or fewer people are less inclined to come to faith is because in our culture, we actually think less than we used to, or we think less frequently on things that are substantial. And here's what I mean. Most people will acknowledge that our ancestors, and I'm talking about maybe not just your parents or your grandparents, but if you think about the ancients, most of our ancestors considered it to be a worthwhile pursuit to ask and at least attempt to answer some really hard questions about life. Most of our ancestors wanted to look beneath or beyond the surface of things into ultimate things, and so they would ask questions like, where did I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? Questions of origin, questions of existence, which people break down into epistemology, how do I know this, or questions of ethics, is this right or is this wrong? Questions just about life and my own existence. What am I made for? What, what, what is my purpose? And then 
questions of destiny. Where am I going? People used to ask those kinds of questions, and not everybody was a philosopher, but people considered those to be the, the important things of life. That's not the case so much anymore. Now, our kids grow up in a culture that essentially drives into their brain day after day after day. The important things of life are not the questions of where did I come from, who am I, where am I going. The important things are standard of living and your career and your appearance and your psychological needs. We've kind of gotten away from pressing beyond just the surface of things to the ultimate things, and so it shouldn't come as any surprise that faith just doesn't come quite as naturally to people because we've become accustomed to living on the surface. As you might remember, the the Bible contrasts living by faith with the surface. Here's specifically how Paul puts it. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We live not in accordance with how things appear to be, but we want to live in accordance with how things actually are. And the recognition for people in the past is the same as the recognition of people of faith, and that is you have to press beyond the surface. Some people have read this verse, unfortunately, from the Apostle Paul saying, oh, okay, Paul's contrasting faith and thinking, faith and reason. No, he's not. Paul's not saying, well, there's those that that live their lives by what's reasonable, and then there's those who live their lives by faith. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying there are those who live on the surface by what appears to be true, and then there are those who live by faith in what is actually true, because what's actually true oftentimes doesn't feel true or appear to be true. And whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is trustworthy, whatever happens to be true and real is worth The commitment of your life. And that's why faith is not just a mental thing. Hey, you just need to believe this. But we walk in faith. And so the mind is involved and the will is is involved. That's kind of where we're going today. We're just kind of talking about the full orb nature of Christian faith. Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to tell you all the points right up front, okay? There's not going to be any surprises. I'm going to tell you where we're going before we get there so you're not confused. There's three major truths that are going to arise from these two verses concerning what does full-fledged Christian faith look like? Okay, the mind is involved and the will is involved. What all is involved? What does it look like? I want to ask you to grade your own paper, okay, so to speak. We're not judging other people. You're just judging yourself, asking yourself these questions. Do I have full-orbed, full-fledged, full-on, full-bodied Christian faith or not? And you can determine that for yourself on the basis of of three observations. The first, here's the three points. Here's the observations. You don't have, number one, you don't have full-orbed Christian faith if your mind has not received the truth. You don't have it. You don't have full-orbed Christian faith if you're not standing in and standing for the truth. And you don't have full-orbed, full-bodied, full-fledged Christian faith if you're not resting in the truth, specifically the truth of Christ. We're going to get into all of that. It's all right here in these two verses. Okay. First off, you don't have full-orbed Christian faith if your mind has not received the truth. Notice what it says here in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible. It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. 
In other words, you can't come to God unless you believe that he's real, unless you've come to the conclusion that, he's, that he is actual, that he's there, that, that he is. And, and what this means is there is a foundational, fundamental level of intellectual assent, uh, comprehension, and engagement. There's a, there's a fundamental level that is required of intellectual engagement before you can actually have a relationship with God. L- let me put it to you like this. This is a very, very obvious example, and you're going to go, well, that's so obvious. Yeah, I know, but that's what I do. I say obvious things. Here's the example. Suppose you love waterfalls. You've been to Niagara Falls. You just think waterfalls are the best, and so you hear about these waterfalls down in South America, and you hear it's just a wonderful place of mystery and wonder, and you want to go. So what do you do? Well, you don't really immediately pack your mules and walk off into the jungle. What you do, and you may not even notice this as a step because it's such a common step, but the first thing you do is determine if these falls are actually real. You talk to people you trust. You talk to people who say they've been there. And then you look at maps, maybe trustworthy maps, and then you determine that they're real. And if they're real, they have a location where they can actually be found. And you do the mental exercise first because you don't go after something, seeking after something, if you don't know it's there to be found. So you determine that it's there. And then you pack your mules and you go into the jungle and then you take this picture and it's all wonderful and you show it to your friends and you tell them you know, that it was so fantastic. That's how it typically works. It's obvious. You don't go seeking for something if you don't know that it exists, that it's not there to be found. Now you say, well, that's so obvious. Yes, I know it is obvious, but here's the thing. Now, trust me, this happens from, from, from time to time, on occasion, especially here in America, in our postmodern world. I'll have people come to church, and maybe they'll, wait, they'll make their way to me, and then we have this conversation, and they say, okay, earnest pastor, look, I'm ready to receive Jesus. I want this Christianity stuff. I'm ready for this. And then I get real excited, and I'm about to pray the prayer, or maybe I'm going to, you know, baptize them next Sunday or something. I get excited about this, and, but then I've learned i got to slow my roll. I get excited because I believe that when people receive Jesus, he changes their lives, but I slow my roll long enough because I know that people aren't always on the same page. And I'll say, okay, now, I, I'm glad that you're excited about Jesus and you want all this Christianity stuff, but let me ask you, do you believe that God is there? I mean, that this is all real, that this is true. That God actually, in reality, in history, space-time, became a human being, and his name is Jesus, and so 2,000 years ago, he actually really came and lived the life you should have lived, and then he died in your place. Under Pontius Pilate, he was actually crucified in history at this particular place called Golgotha, and that he rose again from the dead. Do Do you believe that actually happened? Do you believe this is true? On occasion, it gets kind of quiet. And, and you can tell they're, they're kind of irritated a little bit. And then they will, you know, lecture me because they've been to church twice. And, uh, and they'll say, oh, you know, I don't know if Christianity is true, period. I just know it's true for me. I'm not sure that that actually happened or whatever, but it suits me. I like this belief. Christianity's true for me. And that's really all that matters. No. No, that's not all that matters at all. If you say, well, Christianity is true for me, but I'm just not sure that it's really true, you've just skipped right over 
the essence of faith laid out for us right here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's impossible to please God without faith because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Because if you don't believe that he exists, then you can't come to him. If, he's not, if he doesn't exist for you to come to him, you're never going to come to him. Because the Bible doesn't say anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists in their mind or that he exists for them or just exists in the imagination. No, he's actually there to be found. So when people say, well, I don't know that Christianity is actually true. Don't expect me to tell anybody else that it's true for them. It's just true for me and it just suits me. You know what the person is doing? They're, not, they're just reacting there's been some pain or some sort of trauma or some sort of confusion, and this just kind of suits them in the moment, and it feels right, and so that's enough for me. They're not, in use, they're not engaging their mind. That's not true Christian faith because Christian faith always involves understanding. It has to. Without understanding, there's not actually Christian faith. And so you say, well, Ernest, what's your hang-up? Come on. Just get with the postmodern times. If it's true for them, just leave it alone and, and let's just keep moving. You know why I can't leave it alone? Because it doesn't work. It's not just that, okay, I want to be theologically correct and, and I'm old school and I was a philosophy major and I just think you're not thinking, right? It's, no. If you say, well, it just works for me, I'm just going to tell you, it won't work for you very long. Because your foundation is just a reaction, and that's not a foundation. Put a little bit differently, back to the Apostle Paul. We walk by faith, not by sight. If all you're acting on is sight, what happens when the sight of things changes? What if all you have is a reaction and only feelings? I'm telling you, your feelings will change. Let me put it to you like this. Let's, let's go at why this is so important. I had a, a friend in South Texas, Ray Kay. He was an important member of our church. He was, he's one of the leaders in the church that I pastored when I was in South Texas. Great guy, but he had heart problems, heart issues, history of them. He had a minor heart attack or minor stroke. I can't remember what it was, but it was an issue. He went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you got to quit fried chicken. You have one more piece of fried chicken, and it's going to kill you. And so you know what Ray did? He quit eating fried chicken. By faith, he trusted what the doctor said. Because the doctor knows the body, and he knows diets, and he knows how to read blood work and CAT scans and MRIs and all the other stuff that goes in there. The doctor tells him, you eat one more piece of fried chicken, you're going to die. And Ray stops eating the fried chicken, and he adopts other lifestyle changes like he walks with his wife every day and all the rest. He decides to walk by faith, faith in his doctor. But he said that giving up fried chicken was one of the hardest things. It was like death for him. We talked about starting a fried chicken eaters anonymous, but we didn't have that support group. And, and he just thought, you know, I know this is true. I'm walking by faith. But every time he would go to an event where fried chicken was the central dish or when he would see a Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial, all of a sudden he doubted his commitment, his faith became weak do you know why his faith became weak it was like the serpent was whispering in his ear did god really tell you you shall not eat the fruit of that red and white bucket <laughs> if you eat this surely you will not die why was his faith weak when he was around fried chicken 
because there's the temptation to walk by sight, not by faith. It's not that he was introduced to more reasons or more reality or somebody came up with a great argument or he read some literature somewhere. If you have heart heart problems, eat more fried chicken. There wasn't any new evidence or anything that was reasonable. It was as simple as his faith was weak because the sight and the smell. Walk by faith, not by sight and smells. Maybe that's a good interpretation of the Greek. I don't know. I just made that up. It's in the EJV, the Ernest Jones version. But that's, that's what was happening. Okay, so here's the, here's the thing. The doctor comes to you and says, you've got a heart issue. You've got to cut out the fried chicken. You've got to stop eating it. And then you see the MRIs and all the rest. What do you do if your faith is weak? If you're at that church event and all there is is fried chicken, what do you do? Well, if you want your faith to be strong, you think. You remember what you were told and who told you and why you're doing what you're doing. If you want to strengthen your faith, if you want to renew your faith, you renew your thinking. And you remember you've got these other friends and they've gone through the same thing. And and you knew this one guy who fell off the fried chicken wagon and he died because he ate that fried chicken. And you remember the pictures of the MRIs and all the rest. You dig into what it is that you know. You know why you dig in. You know why you reason and why you think. Because sometimes your feelings will lie to you. The sight of things will deceive you. The surface of things will not match. Now, I want to tell you something as, as a pastor, as a Christian... Sometimes your Christianity is not going to seem real. It's not going to seem true. Do you know why that is? Because when things are true, period, sometimes they just don't seem to be true. And that's actually one of the reasons you know that this is true. Because if it always only seemed true to you, then you'd kind of wonder, well, is this just all in my head? When things don't sometimes seem true to you, that's a validation that you're dealing with something that is real and exterior to yourself. You might have to go back over that online. But here's the point. Sometimes things that are actually true don't seem true. A perfect example of this, I went skydiving. Many of you know this. I went skydiving with my son. This was about two years ago. I think it was Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. Gina made sure that we had our insurance paid up. And uh, then we went and uh, to this training facility down in um, Lexington. It's about an hour from here. And uh, we, we did five and a half hours of training, got on the plane, went up to about, I think, about 12,000 feet. And the plane's cruising at a, approximately 130 miles an hour, which doesn't seem very fast until you step out onto the edge of the wing and you feel the 130-hour winds hitting you in the face, and then you look down on the ground. And let me tell you, in that moment, when you feel the wind and you look at the ground, here's what your sight will tell you. You're about to die. (laughs) Get back in the plane. This is true. You know how you walk, walk past that, and, and you actually take the step? You don't have to jump out of a plane. You just let go. You just take a little step. You know what enables you to take the step of faith? It's when you stop paying attention to what you feel and you stop reacting and you stop just feeling it and looking at the surface of things. You think. You have to remember 
why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, I'm going to have fun. This is great. I've looked forward to this for several months, and I'm having experience with my son. And also, I remember, I just got trained in all this. And, and I know if this little thing happens, well, I can do this, and the chances of the chute not opening are less than 1 out of 10,000. And, and then I've got this other person that's jumping beside me. We're not attached. But I've, you know, I've watched all of the Mission Impossible movies. And I know you, we can grab hold of each other and he can pull his cord and I'll be okay. And, and I also know that if my chute doesn't open, I've got a secondary chute that's attached. And if none of that works, I see all these bodies of water down here and I'll just go for them and do this and I'll be fine. And so you start pressing into what you know and you start reasoning things out. And when you reason, I'm not saying my reason is good, but you start reasoning things out and then you, you let go. But if all you have is, well, it just feels true to me, what happens if all you have, if you came to Christ and all it was was a reaction? No, no thinking, no thought, no understanding. Well, it's just true for me. What happens when it doesn't feel true? What happens when it's not the fried chicken that's on the table, but it's something or someone else? What happens when God deals with you in a way that you don't understand? What happens when your feelings change? I'll tell you what, you let go of Jesus and you go on your way just as quickly as you can. No, it's, just, it's just true for me, and that's all that matters. No, that's not all that matters. That's not true. That's not faith because understanding was not involved, and it doesn't work. Look at how Jesus deals with people who are weak in their faith or have little faith. You go over to Matthew chapter 6. I love this. He says, oh, you little faith, and he talks to him and says, now, you need to think about this. Consider. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor and spin and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these if that's how God deals with the grass of the field what about you aren't you more important than grass or or think about the birds of the air think about the sparrows they don't sow or reap or store away in barns but aren't you more important than a sparrow you know what Jesus is doing he's not saying hey just stop thinking about it and believe just try no saying consider things reason things out think it through what jesus is saying what paul is saying what hebrews is teaching is if you have no faith or little faith you know what the reason is you're not thinking you you've abandoned understanding you're not thinking things through you're just reacting and if you're just on the surface of things just walking by sight and how you feel in the moment you are like that that wave of the sea that's tossed back and forth by the wind, as James talks about it. In other words, you're a flake. And people of faith aren't flaky, or they shouldn't be. Not biblical faith. And you may say, well, I don't know all about that Noah story, whatever, but I can tell you this. Noah was solid and nothing dissuaded him. You want to be solid? You want to be real? You want to be immovable? You accept things with your mind. You cannot come to him unless you believe that he exists, unless you believe God is actually there to be found. So, of course, the mind is involved. But, but the mind is not the only thing that's involved in faith. There's more. There's more to it. 
Because the message of Christianity isn't just an idea. The gospel is not just an idea. It's a power. You, you remember this? We, we memorized this about three or four weeks ago. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Okay? It's, the, it's a power. The gospel is a power. It's not just an idea. It's a power in the form of ideas. And so since the gospel message is an idea, it's going to be apprehended by the mind. But it's more than an idea. It's a power, which means you have to live in it and accept it and, and abide in it and, uh, and apply it. There's an act of the will. Or, or, or put a little bit differently, I think we've got another statement to put up on the screen. Many do not become Christians because they refuse to think, but many others will not become Christians because they will only think. This is the limitation of apologetics, by the way. So I love apologetics, and I love the presentations that John does, and a lot of what I do is apologetics and just kind of arguing for the rationality of Christian faith and all the rest. But there's a limitation because faith is not less than thinking. It's more than thinking. It involves thinking. But there is a step where the idea of faith has to become the power of faith, and you have to move past simply believing in God to believing him. There's a, there is an act of the will. This is why some people can come intellectually to the conclusion that all this is real and they still don't become Christians. Why? Because there's something that is resistant in you and me to submitting my life to someone other than me, even if that someone other than me is God. But if you're going to be consistent with what you know, you have to say, okay, I believe that there's a God, and since there is a God and I'm not God, well, I better stop acting like God. And if there is a God and I'm not God and God is the center of the universe and the creator of all, I actually ought to seek after this God. That just makes sense. That's a follow-through on what your mind is telling you that involves the will. Or put more specifically with regards to Christ. It's not enough for somebody to say, okay, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. Yeah, I'm an Easter Christian and I believe in the incarnation. That was really God who did all that. And, and, but I'm good. I'm good. I'm, you know, I'll show up a couple times a year. I'm good with that. You know, thumbs up. Uh, if... He is the king. Then you follow through and say, well, if he's the king, I'm not the king, so I need to stop acting like I'm the king. If he is the savior and I'm not the savior, then I better stop acting as if I'm the savior of my own life. You follow through where your mind leads you, but there is a follow through so that you're no longer just believing in God, you're believing him. And that brings us to the next thing where you're actually moving from the idea of faith to the power of faith, and that involves the will. Okay, so back to the self-evaluation here. You don't have fully orbed Christian faith if your mind does not receive the truth, but you don't have fully orbed Christian faith if you're not standing in or standing for the truth. Okay, let's, let's reread verse 7. Get to it. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see how Noah moves from simply knowing about God to something more. He moves from believing in God to believing God. You know how he does that? He puts his weight down on what God says more than he puts his weight down on anything else, including what he sees. How he does that, it's spelled out for us really clearly here. It's a beautiful example. Here's the story of Noah. You know the story. God comes to Noah and says, the whole world's going to be destroyed by a flood. Everything's going to be washed away. Nothing's going to be able to stand. Nothing will endure. Get ready for it. Build an ark. So in the middle of nowhere, or in the middle of West Texas, so to speak, he builds an ocean liner. 
and the sun is shining. And this is for years. I'm not going to get into all the biblical mathematics, but probably 20 to 40 years was realistic. Two, three, four decades he's out there, and the sun's shining, the birds are singing, the people are carrying on in their wickedness and laughing, and here's Noah building an ocean liner on the dirt. Why? Here's the answer. It's real simple. The motivation. In holy fear. What that means is you got a whole lot of other people who, in an unholy fear, only tremble when they see the water coming up over the rooftops of their houses. Moses trembled before he ever saw a drop of rain. Moses trembled when he heard God speak. He trembled at God's word. That was it. Holy fear. Fear doesn't just mean fright. You think, really, in this case, think reverence, think awe, think focus. Here's what's going on with Moses or Abraham or Noah. Here's what's going on with all of those guys. (laughs) We're going to talk about all these people at some point or another in this series through Hebrews chapter 11. Here's, Here's what Noah's thinking. The sun will not shine always. The birds will not be singing always. The people will not be laughing in their wickedness always. God has told me so. Moving from believing in God to believing God is just about where do you put your weight down or put more succinctly Believing God means you have begun to let what God says about reality define reality more than your feelings define reality. You just go with what God says, and it doesn't matter how anything else looks or how the culture around you responds. You just go with what God says. And if God says so, well, then it makes perfect sense to go with what he says. Because he's God, and you're not. Now, before we move on, l- let me just ask you this question. We're going to get kind of personal here. What defines your reality? Now, that's up to you. It's really up to you. Or put it a little bit differently, what's the lens through which you look at everything else? Is it your current circumstances and feelings and culture? Is that the lens through which you look at your Christian faith? If that's it, you don't have Christian faith. Because your Christian faith isn't actually the lens through which you look. Or is your... Christian faith, the lens through which you look at your culture and circumstances and everything else. What's primary? What, where do you find your identity? What defines you? It's getting, let's get more personal. Suppose you're in the midst of some sort of bitterness, resentment. What do you look at? Do you look at the wounds of Christ or do you look at your own wounds? Well, what's primary? Well, you see both. Which do you see first? If you look at the wounds of Christ, you say, well, okay, I gave you those wounds. You didn't deserve those wounds. I've been wounded too, but you deserved it less than me. In fact, you didn't deserve it at all, and that's what it required in order for you to forgive me. So I guess I'm going to forgive these other people because I'm seeing your wounds more than I see mine. Or how about this? You see your bills. Here's the other thing. You see your bills. You see your sickness. You see condemnation in your life. Okay, those are real. But how about Christ? Christ says, okay, you want, you want to talk about bills? I paid your debt. 
you want to talk about sickness? I've dealt with the sickness that leads unto death, sin, which is which afflicts all of humankind. I've dealt with that. Oh, oh yeah, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, both are true. What defines the other? Where do you find your identity? What is it that ultimately defines you? Where are you resting? Are you resting in the written word, in God's word that's spoken to your heart, or the incarnate word, Jesus Christ? Are you allowing his word to define you more than what you see, more than your circumstances or your feelings? Because I'm telling you, your Christian faith, it's not full-orbed, it's not full-on, it's not Christian faith if you've not received the truth in your mind, but also if you're not standing in and standing for the truth, even if that means that your lifestyle and your choices and your values and your convictions seem about as weird to the rest of the world as an ocean liner being built in the middle of West Texas. There's a third thing we need to consider when we're thinking about full-on Christian faith, and that is not just has my mind received the truth, not just am I standing in, volitionally standing in the truth and for the truth, but you also need to understand this. You don't have full orb, you don't have full-on Christian faith if you're not resting in the truth. Don't miss the gospel in verse 7. Let's go back over this one more time. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of a righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I want you to see two pictures here. First, just notice the word heir. An heir you know, what is an heir? Now, it's H-E-I-R. What is an heir? An heir is somebody who gets rich because of somebody else's work. An heir is someone who gains wealth, standing, because of something someone else did. That's an heir. You think about the people, maybe they're the great entrepreneurs or great workers, and they really made it, and they saw the market niche, and they met the need, and they had the elbow grease and the ingenuity, and they took the risks, and they built this company, and, and they became quite wealthy. You think about that guy or that woman, and they were the great entrepreneur, worker, builder. Why did they get rich? Now, I know that everybody is blessed by God, and God gives gifts and opens doors and all the rest. But just speaking plainly, the reason that person got rich is they earned it. Now, you think about their heirs, the children, the benefactors. How do they get rich? Those miserable, rotten, lazy, bum kids. No, they, some of them are great. How do they get rich? Their relationship. They didn't do a thing. Put up the next quote for me if you don't mind. Heirs get rich. Here's the only reason. They get rich because of their relationship to their benefactors. That's it. It wasn't 50-50. I did some work and they did some work. It's like, no, you got it 100% because of what they did. And the only reason you got it is you had a relationship with them. That's Christianity. And that is what makes Christianity absolutely different than any other world religion, and here's why. Every other religion is like, okay, do your work, build your company, get your resume together, build your righteousness, get your riches, and then you're going to be able to buy your house. You can buy your mansion, or you can get the key to your special room. That's how you do it, is you earn it. And then you give it to God, or your deity, whatever it is, and then that gives you a relationship. Christianity is different. You enter a relationship, and he gives you everything. Entirely backwards. You become an heir. You become a child. 
He gives you all of his riches. See, you don't, you don't give it to him. It comes to you. That's the other word that you need to notice here. That Abraham became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You don't get there. You don't earn it. It just, it just comes to you. And when the inheritance comes to you, you're every bit as rich as your benefactor. It's yours. And it just happens basically because the person died. Now, unfortunately, it just happens. People get old and then they die and they have to pass along their inheritance. But in the case of Christianity, actually, God in Christ Jesus dies intentionally so that you get it all. That's the essence of Christianity. That's how you get in. You become a benefactor. Now, what's, let's just talk about how is this all possible? How does this work? It's all possible, and you see this in the picture of the ark. Let's, let's just go back to the ark, go back to the Old Testament, think about the story. God comes to Noah and says, there's a flood coming. And it's a flood of judgment. And everybody actually likes judgment. I mean, everybody thinks we need good judges. We want good judges in the Supreme Court, good judges in the federal courts, good judges in the state courts and local courts, because we know there's injustice, and injustice needs to get set right. We want to live in a just and balanced world. We want good judges with good judgment because the whole world needs justice. The problem is, while the whole world gets justice and needs justice, how do we escape it? That's kind of the question. Now, the good thing about our good judge who's bringing a flood of judgment is, man, he is perfectly fair. He's so fair because he judges everybody. And when the flood of judgment comes, everybody gets judged the same. And to make it even better, this judge, when he brings this incredible judgment, will judge everybody on the basis of what everybody already thinks is fair and true. Nobody gets judged in a way that they think is inappropriate. You say, what? I know we don't talk about this very much, but let me just touch on this real quickly. The Bible teaches us, Jesus says this over in Matthew chapter 7. One of the ways we're going to be judged, the essential way we're going to be judged, is in accordance with the golden rule. Do to others as you'd have them do unto you. That sums up the whole law and the prophets. It comes right down to this. And I have yet to bump into somebody or meet somebody who says, that's the dumbest rule ever. If everybody on the face of the planet just met everybody else's needs with all the passion and interest and intentionality and energy with which they met their own needs, this whole world would fall apart. Nobody says that. When people hear the golden rule, they don't go, oh, Jesus, what an idiot. We all know. We want. That's just a great rule. In fact, we apply this rule all the time. We don't necessarily apply it to ourselves, but we get really mad. Why? Because that other person didn't treat me the way that I wanted to be treated. That's why you get mad. Because the people around you violated the golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule. They don't necessarily want to live it. They don't live it, but they think it's a pretty good rule. And you say, well, I'm just not sure I'm buying that. Let me just press a little further. You go over to Romans chapter 2, and the Bible teaches that we get judged in accordance with what our conscience, what we know according to our conscience, and, and, and what we know in terms of what we impose on other people. It's like you got a little invisible tape recorder around your neck and it records every word out of your mouth and every judgment that you pass on somebody else and it even records your thoughts and then at the, at the end of your life we take off the little recorder and God plays the recorder of your standard back to you it's like okay all, this is all that's going to happen Jesus says 
in Matthew 7. Judge not lest you be judged. Why? Because with the judgment you use, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. I'm just going to judge you according to what you know and, and the standard that you impose on other people. That's fair, isn't it? Sure. By your own thoughts, Jesus says. By your own words, you'll be judged. That's fair. The problem is, fair's not good enough because none of us lives up even to our own standard. That's the problem. God judges everybody, judges everybody the same, and he judges everybody in accordance with what everybody already kind of believes and knows in their heart and applies to other people. So here's the problem. There's a flood of judgment coming, but my record and my sin is going to sink me to the bottom. Can anybody float on top? And the answer is, well, there's one person that could stay afloat above the flood that's coming. That's Jesus, the one who walked on water, the only one who actually loved his neighbor as himself. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived, but also because he's consistent, because he does love his neighbor as himself, because he does to others what he would want them to do for him, he gives himself for us. He treated you like his neighbor. And although he didn't have to go under the flood, he did. The only one who could stay afloat submerged himself beneath the flood of the judgment for you. He lived the life you should have lived, and then he died the death you deserve to die. Why? So that you would get what he deserved. Because he loved his neighbor as himself. Isn't that great? And that's why 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, compare Jesus to the ark. How do you get saved? How do you get saved from the coming judgment? It's real simple. You admit, my record, my sin has got me sunk. But I know that I've got a Savior, and so I'm going to enter into the ark. What the Bible teaches is not that we get saved from the coming flood of judgment because we imitate Jesus. We go into Christ. We trust in him. We place our faith in him because we've got a Savior. And when you're in him, here's what happens. When you're in the ark, the judgment beats against the ark. But the very flood that crushes everyone else, that actually lifts you above the earth. You know why? Because you're in Christ. So here's the thing. When your faith is like Noah's, when you, when you have the faith that receives the truth into your mind, when you don't just believe in God, though, you also believe God, and you stand in the truth, and you stand for the truth, and you make that act of the will. And then when you rest in the truth of Jesus Christ, in the provision, and you act as an heir, not an earner, but an heir, when you receive his grace, here's what happens. You get strength, you get peace, you get confident, you, you stay dry, you're strong. And isn't that what you want from your faith? That it only comes when you have the faith of Noah. All the pieces. Receive the truth in your mind. Receive it in your will. Rest in Christ. It's not that complicated. And that's a lot of what we remember when we come to the table. We remember that by his broken body and by his shed blood, we have access to God and we can become heirs of a righteousness that comes by faith. Faith specifically in Christ. And if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to do that this morning. 
so that when we do partake of communion and we do remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, you'll be doing it as a worshiper and not just as an observer. So let's just go ahead and bow for a moment of, uh, of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I, I do want to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I, I really do believe there's a God and that he came and he lived in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus, you know, he, he suffered and he died for me. He died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. I believe that happened. And I also, I want to walk in that truth. I don't want it just to be a mental matter. I want that truth to impact my life. And I want to put my weight down on that. I want to, I don't want it just to be a mental thing. I know that he's the king and I don't need to act like king. I know that he's the savior and I want him to be my savior. And I know that he did this for me and I want to rest in what he did for me. Because I admit, I have sinned. I've fallen short. My record of my sin has gotten sunk in light of the appropriate coming fair judgment of God. If you're here this morning and you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer just right where you are. I'm not going to, this is only what it is. I'm not going to trick you into something else. You just say to God right where you are, just in your heart, in your mind, you pray to God, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've fallen short. I know I've done wrong. And it's not that I just messed up. I did wrong knowing it was wrong. i got a sin problem. I'm sunk. But I also know that you sent an ark. You gave me a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he did live the life I should have died, lived, and he died the death I should have died, that I would get what he deserved. And by faith, I want to place my trust in Jesus. I want to enter into Christ and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. So, God, I trust in Jesus, and I just say thank you for saving me of my sin. Thank you for giving me a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.